0: In the spring of 2017, I had Daniel Camacho out as a guest speaker. Here's what he said.
1: What's happened is basically people like Cone um, have been domesticated, um, have been basically tokenized theologically or intellectually. So like there are different forms of white supremacy, like white supremacy can take on a very overt, overt form where it's like we don't want you here. You're not allowed to be in the school. It can also take on more subtle forms where it's like, we do want you to be in the school or we want you to be in the space or we want you to be in Christianity, but under our terms and in a way that we can use you and manipulate you in a way that doesn't challenge us, that doesn't like have to, we don't have to dramatically change how we run things, how we do things.
0: This is Profane Faith. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Got down on his knees and gave his
1: life to Christ.
0: Because Americans are dreamers too.
1: You're not in any moral position to tell anybody how corrupt they are. You should be quiet. Why? Why are our black sons and daughters
0: being treated so badly? This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins faith that has been labeled profane, non-conformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, y'all. Welcome back. Welcome back. It is a profane faith in the house, in the place to be. How y'all doing out there in podcast land? How you, uh, how you, how you in in, uh, engaging these days? Um, Man, today is great because the sun is out in Chicago. Man, I tell you, having grown up in California, I guess I never realized how much I took the sun and blue skies for granted for so long. (laughs) It's, yeah, man, spring, it's been. A miserable, miserable time just waiting for spring to show up, man. And like I said in previous podcasts, I haven't even got a chance to, to start planting my, getting my grass ready and planting stuff outside, man. It's been, we had some more snow this last week. I mean, it wasn't a lot and dang sure nothing like Minneapolis, Twin Cities, Milwaukee, where they, I mean, they had double digits of snow, man. So God bless them up there, man. you listening from up there, God bless y'all, man, because that's, whoo, that's some crazy stuff right there um but yeah we still nevertheless we had snow uh was that thing on wednesday night and coming back and you know it was all kind of slop on the road and i'm like gee who is in heaven so mm-hmm. at any rate it's uh got my vitamin d and, and i'm feeling good um i'm also feeling good because um i've gotten a couple of phone calls and messages from some folks former students who just took me for one class and uh man i just here's the thing i'm really thankful for those who have reached out um i really haven't you know talked with you to you know clear names or anything like that um you know so i won't i won't um but i really do thank you i know you're listening and i i thank you a lot i mean there was one this week from a former student who's a who's a who's a, a listener here on the podcast and you know a white student who took me and now he's doing amazing things and you know just called to say thank you and, and appreciate the work that I was doing and so you know man I'm I don't mean to sound narcissistic here but I think it's important um I think it's important to have those you know those those connections and it's also you know just it, it's it is it often feels like it's an impossible task that's at hand right um the work that we do the work that is in the of the mind the work of the, of the intellect particularly the work of intercultural competency and stuff and so again i don't want to sound like oh man it's all about me but it's important to hear successes it's important to hear how those things are affecting other folks Um, I mean, it's important to see it's important to see results no matter where you're at and no matter what you're doing um it's important to see results and i just thank you y'all for doing that i got a couple handwritten notes this last week too and uh again i just want to say thank you uh it's been good it's felt good it's felt real good um this has been a long hard semester um and uh it's uh, it's nice being able to head into the summer with some with a head of steam right you know uh and so it's just been good and and i just want to i want to gush for a little bit you know uh even though you know we still have a lot of work to do you know uh if you're listening to this in real time, or at least within the the relevant, you know, uh, you know, months here in 2018, in the spring of 2018, you know, we got some stuff going on, man. We got the Starbucks issue. Um, we've got, um, you know, we got more black men being killed. We have, you know, uh, you know, continued. Uh, 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 we have you know National Guard out there with you know whole immigration thing in California. So we got a lot of work. There's a lot of work, um, and. Um, some interesting interesting news about uh, there was an evangelical meeting that took place uh, at Wheaton College and you know it's just funny uh I had an insider that was there uh, I won't mention their name but uh just interesting just to hear just some of the conversations white folks is having around evangelicalism right now and um great article that just came out in um religion dispatches that uh, I may just post in the show notes and uh written by Hollis Phelps uh, maybe it's time to admit that the grotesque caricature of white evangelicals is the reality. Um, and that's something, you know, I want to explore, explore more here uh, on this show, because it's like, what is evangelicalism, you know, anymore, especially now when you think about, you know, where Trump is and all the stuff that's coming out about him. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the avid and strong support that, uh, you know, his evangelical base continues to, to show for him i mean i can't even imagine if obama had even thought these things right like a glimpse of any of this stuff like if obama had even checked out another woman just like his eyes had moved and stuff man it would have been like a national thing we've been calling for uh impeachment so yeah uh we have work <laughs> we have a lot of work and so um that's that's a future show that's a future show we're gonna um we're gonna have that and we're gonna put that together um this week I am excited because I got my boy Daniel Camacho, Daniel Jose Camacho, on the show. I know a lot of you guys have been waiting and and uh, excited for this. We had an amazing conversation. Um, Daniel's is is a brilliant mind, and this brother is a writer. I'm putting his website in the show notes. You've got to check out his. You 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 have to see his writing uh i mean it's it's amazing i I was clicked on the you know this latest in the archives i'm like good night this brother writing something every week um he's what i would call a 21st century journalist i mean he is you know he is a great mind of great thought um he's out there and i was like man i've known this 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 brother since really since he was at uh calvin college and you know we're going to talk about that here in the interview you know when we first met but um, I think even beyond that, just our, our meeting, I think this is another representation of just a sharp mind who gets the religious experience, who's educated, but is also somebody who wants to see change. Uh, but is 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 coming at it from a strong critical perspective, and and not afraid, to, <laughs> not afraid to put it out there. And I think that's the another you know sign of hope for me in this tumultuous time, right? that we have a contingent of young people that are really really serious about moving forward and about making change you know in where where they're at and i am encouraged with the next generation i am encouraged with how they are organizing you know uh you know they're not perfect either but i do think there is some great movements uh particularly those in their 20s uh 30s you know i'm in my 40s so i you know but i i know i'm an Xer and so uh i own that proudly nonetheless uh this generation has got some amazing minds and so i wanted to highlight one of those minds in uh brother daniel and stuff and so This conversation is interesting. Uh, He had posted an article not too long ago, and uh, it's on his Patreon, which I will also um, put on here. And I encourage all of you to go and support him. It's like three bucks per month. Uh, and you get some amazing work from him. Uh, this is another thing. Another thing that we should be doing is supporting uh, these writers and these, uh, thought makers uh, of color who are out there making it and doing it. Uh, but a lot of them are just, um, you know, just, just, just scrimping by. Um, and so it's important for us to support them. And so I'm a supporter. Um, I went on and got that in support of a few other folks as well. And, um, yeah, the title of it, and which is the bulk of our conversation uh, this week, is Why Christians Need to Stop Talking About Racial Reconciliation. Oh, mercy. <laughs> Here's the thing, y'all. I have actually been on the fence with theologies around racial reconciliation for quite a long time. Um, probably like easily the last six, seven years. Um, I started giving it the side eye, you know, around 2010. and um, was like, mm, I don't know, but I didn't have enough to formulate stuff then. And just having progressed along the way, I have fallen quickly out of love with any theology that really, you know, particularly evangelical theologies around racial reconciliation. And I know those things are big money. Those are, those are real big money, right? People engage with, you know, and look towards trying to, um, You know, write books on racial reconciliation. I mean, I know, you know, and, and here's the thing. I'll say this. I don't necessarily I'm not against reconciliation, the idea and the concept of it. I think there are, you know, instances of support in that theologically, biblically, you know, if you, you know, as a Christian. At the same time, I think a lot of the racial reconciliation theologies do support, you know, whiteness. They support whiteness as a culture, white supremacy as a culture. And so it does not do anything for the person of color. In fact, if anything, uh, it lowers them to a lower stance and it really allows a lot of the systemic issues off the hook, right? Because for rec- racial reconciliation to really work, it really does require whiteness to really be decentered and off shifted for that reconciliation to, to, to transpire. Um, and I, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, the color of fear uh, Victor, one of the participants in there, uh, talks about it. He says, you know, I have changed as a black man. I have changed all I can. And that's really where I find myself. I've changed all I can change. It, I, I can't change anymore. This is it. And for me, I I didn't invent racism. And sure, I'm not perfect. And I'm not a person who is claiming to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, non that doesn't have non-stereotypical thoughts and ideologies. In terms of systemic racism, there's not much I can change with that. Um, and so I I read this essay, which I encourage you. You know, once you you know get on as a Patreon, you can read the whole thing. It's an, it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing essay. You know, and you know how he talks about a moratorium for racial reconciliation, why Christians need to stop talking about it, because I just don't. It, it's it's more of a feel good for whiteness rather than an actual challenge to say, let's engage. It's, it's it it really sidesteps the really hard and difficult conversation. Of whiteness. And when I say whiteness, it's not just white people, it's white culture, it's a white ideological structure, a white worldview, a white theological approach to understanding what Christianity, right, is a, a standardization that is imposed on people of color, that is imposed on us as as ethnic minorities, right? Uh that we are in in, in many regards told to adhere to i'll give you an example so this last week i was uh, on another podcast uh, i think it was C- culture cast there we go um and uh you know afterwards it was a great time in fact um when it's up and running um i'll post it on the website i'll tweet it out and everything it was actually a great conversation the actual conversation was great it was the q a afterwards that was that was uh, that was interesting uh because this one brother came up and you know and he was asking me you know like you know this on hip-hop and he's really asking me questions about Honestly, that I've answered, you know, 10, 12 years ago and but it was still coming from a perspective that I am suspect of anything that is that doesn't fit into this kind of theological scale. Now, I get that that's in general where we tend to stand anyway, just in terms of, you know, if this doesn't fit within my own, you know, religious dogma, you know, should I even trust it? um you know christians we we get real spooked out real quick man if there's you know another another religious thought but when you add race into that it it adds another dimension um to uh this 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 construct of what a christian should be how christianity should be right we should use clean words we should only count the gospel we should only you know respect that which is you know you know this written word and and I, I, for me I just again I just I have issues and problems you know with with that as I as I push back from that and um, I push back from it in a sense that I put well I'll put it to you this way I push back from it because I know that that's not the entire story of Christianity I know that the the, the people who are in power shape and craft narratives that reflects them that 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 has characteristics of who they are and so um, that's a large part of what Christianity and in those racial reconciliation theologies, a lot of that is in there lying. And so I do, I have I do, I have issues with that, man. I just I struggle with coming to terms with this understanding of what you know racial reconciliation really is. Because what is it? I mean what what does that mean? So okay, so let's say we come together and woo woo we hug it out and oh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What is that gonna do? What is that gonna change? What is What does that look like on a national sense? What does that mean for policies? Does that mean you're gonna invite me to your program? Does that mean you're gonna allow me to create my own policy that bring in more ethnic minorities? I don't know. Because for whiteness to be decentered, it creates a destabilization that many are not willing to live with, okay? It creates a, a gap that some find disturbing. And a lot of that is this financial gap, right? Um, one of the shows I'm working on? A special edition is on Mystic Soul, a conference I attended uh, back in January, and it was truly uh, one of the first conferences that decentered whiteness, but it caused a lot of disturbing uh, uh, images for for folks around it, right? That weren't involved in it because they were like, "Whoa, wait a minute, you know, why do you hate white people? Why aren't you writing white people?" It's like, "What do you mean de- decentering whiteness? And why are you doing this? And why are you doing that?" I mean, that is part of the problem, right? It's just that disruptiveness. If I could see a racial reconciliation that, that that was created in the disruptive, that was created in the decentering, maybe I could. OK, let's see what that looks like. And so Daniel has put together, you know, a, a great construct around that. And he has some amazing uh, thoughts and processes around that. So I was like, man, I got to bring this brother on the show <laughs> straight up. I got to get him on the show. Uh, we got to have a conversation and uh, we got to engage in this because this is something that I think is vastly overlooked and it's so popularized anytime anything becomes popularized it just you know for me it becomes problematic on on many 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 levels and so like i said i have uh, i've had some problems with this and you know i have, coming out of the ccda world christian community development association i know that's one of the r's right racial reconciliation redistribution and relocation. Um, while redistribution, I'm still working my way through. The other two R's I got big problems with. I think relocation has caused a lot of gentrification. I think relocation has caused a lot of the problems we're seeing now in our city. You know, like white folks are coming back. It's it's a white flight into the city, right? And I'm and, and it's not for the betterment of that society and that in that community. Um, and so for me, I'm just like, well, what does reconciliation look like when the ethnic minorities can't even afford the community that they thought they at least had a corner in and they can't even live there anymore, right? Um, you know and with this 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 concept of Starbucks right that is really an image of gentrification right I mean you know you know all kind of black comedians black and brown comedians have you know have made the the reference that you know when you start seeing Starbucks that's you know you know the white folks is coming and stuff and so and here's the thing I'm not against Starbucks. I, you know shoot I, I still drink some coffee from them and you know they're trying to work things out whatever my point being is is that when we think about reconciliation when we think about relocation and those those our's um we're at a time now when I've said this before the house is on fire so we can no longer politely ask hey hey can we maybe please you know it's like hashtag we done asking straight up we done asking and <sighs> Social media, podcasts, spaces like this have created spaces and created um, some environments where we as people of color don't have to ask anymore. We don't have to go and be, you know, get get permission. And I think the time is now (laughs) to have these conversations and to begin to figure out what is the way forward? What is the way forward with this and how do we engage? And so thus I bring my man, Daniel Camacho, uh, who is a contributing opinion writer at The Guardian US. Uh, He writes about politics and religion. Man, a lot of his articles have appeared in Christian Century, Religion Dispatches, Sojourners, Duke Magazine, ABC, Religion and Ethics, Time, and the Washington Post. And his commentary has appeared in the New York Times. Yo, the New York Times, y'all! Born a Colombian immigrant. He was raised in Uniondale, New York. Uh, Daniel graduated from uh, Calvin College, actually, with a B.A. in philosophy. That's where I met him. In 2017, he graduated from Duke Divinity School with a Master of Divinity. Daniel has worked in multiple Christian congregations uh, at the Long Island, civil rights, nonprofit, race, racism, and in the student affairs offices, such as the Center for Multicultural Affairs at Duke University. Um... In addition to writing, you know, he has presented academic papers at Princeton Theological Seminary, UNC, Chapel Hill, Rutgers University, and Fordham University. And he has presented at local churches on the topics of racism and peace. This brother is out there, man. I keep trying to tell him, like, man, you you don't get that PhD. He's like, man, I don't know about that. I feel you on that. I feel you on that. Um, But uh, Daniel Jose uh, Camacho is just, again, a great thinker. And it was time. It was high time. And if you, uh, a publisher out there. Y'all need to come look at this brother. All right. He's got some amazing ideas. I've tried to get him published in a couple of places, man, unsuccessfully. So I'm, I'm still trying. I'm still out there advocating for voices like this, uh, because it's high time. And so, psh- Let's have this conversation, man. So without any further ado, check out brother Daniel Jose Camacho. Uh, again, I'll put these all in the show notes. And I know I've gotten a couple of comments from people about, you know, I know Kendrick just won the the, the Pulitzer. Yo, it's coming. I'm working on it, man. Uh, uh, that's huge. That's huge. That's huge. So it's coming. But uh, this week, Daniel Camacho. And we're talking about, again, just kind of the pitfalls of racial reconciliation. Check it out. Hitting record. All right, man. We are we are official. We All, right, All right, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Brother Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show, Profane Faith. Good to have you.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be here.
0: <laughs> yes. What some people don't know is we were supposed to set this up this last uh weekend, but I I I I slept in a little bit too much on Saturday and we had to reschedule as they say, man, so <laughs> thank you it's all good, it's oh, all good. Things, things happen things do happen man i guess i needed more i was t- more tired than um than i thought i was man um well before we get into like a lot of the work man i would love to just for the folks to just maybe hear your story a little bit about uh you know as they say i guess that's an evangelical word what <laughs> what is, what is your, your 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 uh spiritual journey story about? You? but nonetheless i mean what has theologically shaped you what has brought you through this path and how have you ended up where you're at right now.
1: Sure, yeah. So I'll share a little bit about about that. So um, for those who don't know, so I'm originally from uh, New York. I'm from Long Island. Mm. Um, I was born and raised to uh, Colombian immigrants who came from Barranquilla, um, and I was raised in a Latino Protestant church, an immigrant church, um, it was a Spanish speaking Methodist congregation. And that was really one of the most formative, uh, kind of experiences of my life. Uh, for the first 12 years of my life, that was my, my church. And that was basically, I would say one of the bedrocks of my, of my faith. Uh, my parents were very involved as church leaders. Um, they were not ordained, so they were not like clergy. But my mom still was a lay preacher, and my dad taught Sunday school, so I had no choice but to be um, at church uh, most of, most of the time. <laughs> Even though I would try, you know, I would try to escape, I would try to get out of it when I was like little. But at that point, I had no choice. <laughs> yeah. So my parents they were feeding me and taking care of me. I had to follow them. So, um, so you know, I ended up at church a lot, um, and that was really where I really just first uh found you know the first faith community was that community which now looking back um it's kind of amazing because i've been i've been a part of now very different kinds of of faith uh communities so i um i started there but um basically when i was in my late teens so the pastor of that methodist congregation ended up being reassigned by the superintendent the Methodist superintendent and so the church some things changed at the church. My parents kind of transitioned out, and we ended up being in a Baptist church that um, had was, was, had a building with um, both an English-speaking congregation and a Spanish-speaking congregation that would sometimes meet together. So I started to now kind of be part of a bilingual kind of uh, an attempt at a kind of a bicultural uh, ministry. Um, this was this was still on, on Long Island, um, so I was part of that through my teenage years. And then um, I I went through a really, I guess I would just describe it as a wild uh, personal journey of faith where Mm -hmm. I started to really ask questions about, up until that point, um, it was really, you know, my my parents were really uh, driving things in terms of I I was trying to keep them happy, keep my mom happy. And then (laughs) once I hit that teenage phase, I was trying to figure out for myself, you know, what... Uh, what did I actually believe? What does this mean to me? And I, I went through all sorts of kind of, I guess I would call them experimental phases where I, I think I got like a uh, online degree in theology by how many blogs I read and, uh, you know, <laughs> sermon podcasts. And That's right. Like that. And so I started to just really explore and, um, and I went through a phase where I was, a, I was a conservative columnist. Uh, so oh. I, I wasn't necessarily raised, yeah, I wasn't necessarily raised as a as a conservative Calvinist, my I wouldn't describe that as my parents' belief at all. Um there I, I yeah, and my my first congregation was not like that, but that happened more through online. I started to read people like John Piper, John MacArthur, et cetera. I could go down, you know, the whole line of, of people and and I started to really uh, for me it was kind of my first time that I took ownership of my own faith and yet it was a very it was a very complicated thing.
0: Man, that's a trip, man. I mean, so which I mean, you know, I'm not surprised. I mean, a lot of the guests I've had, including myself, we've come through fundamentalist, conservative, you know, backgrounds and whatnot. I mean, because the first time I met you um, was at Calvin uh, University, wasn't it, or Calvin yeah. College? I think, right? Yeah,
1: well, yeah, Calvin College. Yeah, and actually, so I, I wanted, I was. Saving the story for for my, my first appearance on your podcast, and <laughs> and it's it's about on. the first time I met <laughs> the first time I met Dan Whitehead. <laughs> oh lord, oh
0: lord! All right, so, let me brace myself.
1: <laughs> so, um, I was at Calvin College. I don't even remember what year I was, but I was I was a young student there, and you came to give to give a talk um, about about race, about bias. Um, about multi- multiculturalism, oh. uh, to, to room full of students. And I, I remember that I was like, who is this dude that I'm like, I need to, I need to talk to him <laughs> because you can't <laughs> And I was like, this guy tells the truth. This guy's <laughs> being real. And I was like, I, I needed, I needed to of that. I didn't, you know, I didn't hear that in all corners. So, um, I remember I reached out to you. You actually took the time you met me afterwards um mm. and basically answered some of my questions i just wanted to talk to you i think i had some questions about um i looked up you know your research and I basically asked you questions about tupac and you also signed my copy of the soul of
0: hip-hop which oh, i think is your first book i remember that i remember that now yeah
1: <laughs> and, and i still and i still have that book so i just want to say that you know for your listeners um dan white hodge is the truth <laughs>
0: yeah. oh, he,
1: man. you, you, you know, he pays it, he pays it forward. So he, when, when I was absolutely, I was nobody at that point. <laughs> I had not published a thing. <laughs> um, you took the, you know, you took the time to talk to me and sign my book and everything. So, so yeah, I look back at that. I'm just like, wow!
0: Look at look at look at things now. <laughs> man, that's wow. Well, that I mean, I mean, first of all, thank you, man. I mean, I I do remember meeting meeting you. I remember, and I'm forgetting who it was who who was like the multicultural director at the time, but. I remember them setting up the, the meeting. They said, hey, this young brother wants to meet with you. And everything." I said, oh, yeah, of course. And I was just surprised that there was, like, you know, other brothers and, you know, Afro-Latinx folks that are there, man. And so, oh, man, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Those were, those were interesting days. I think I came out for the writing – or not the writing one, but the – oh, them conferences they do every other year. There's one on writing, but then there's another one that they do on, like – um uh, it's festival of facing music and, and uh yeah. festival of Faith and writing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's that's what's up. <laughs> well, I mean, hey, dude, that's man, you know, like I said, that's 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 what's <laughs> up, man. I've been I've been try- I was been trying. I've been trying. Um <laughs> well I mean maybe you could talk a little bit, because uh, I know you've written on your experience at, at uh Calvin. I mean if you wouldn't mind sharing like you know, what was that like? Was were you, you know, this as they say, woke? Then did that transition jar some of this uh, open? Or I mean, how did that? What was that like in you know your experience there?
1: Yeah, well, when I when I got to Calvin, I was not was not woke at all, using that term. I was I was not woke. If anything, I was anti woke. I went to Calvin, like I said, I went to uh, through a phase when I was in my kind of uh, through high school and kind of probably beginning of college when I got to Calvin where I was uh, much more conservative um, in my theological beliefs and also my, my political and social beliefs. When I got to Calvin, I knew it, it was a very different place. And people you know, often ask me, how how did I end up there? And that's a long story. But basically, mm-hmm. um, I had gone, I've gone to public schools my whole life. I've gone to a public elementary school and, and school district in New York. And um, I, my interaction with sort of the evangelical or Christian world was, like I said, mostly online. It's like one of those people that like, you don't, you don't, you don't know what you're getting at yourself into because it's not like you've been to these places and you've actually seen these people. I mean, I did, I did eventually attend like one conference, like Ligonier Conference, which is R.C. Sproul's conference, but um, but I had very limited interaction. All of my, all of myself was online. I convinced myself that I wanted to go to a Christian college. Um, which mm-hmm. were, I don't think it was entirely a bad, bad idea. I okay. wanted to go to a liberal arts school. I wanted to study philosophy, and so uh, Calvin um, has always had a really great philosophy department. Um, I did I did a summer program at Calvin. I enjoyed my time there, and then I, I basically, I was there. I was at Calvin. But when I got there, I would say I, I wanted nothing to do with issues of diversity or race. Interesting. And I think, yeah, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I remember there was a there's an intentional uh, live and learning community called Mosaic, um, which later got changed to grassroots. And when I first got there, I saw that that was one of the options to live in. I was like, I don't want to live there. (laughs) I do not want to be there. (laughs) Like, don't put me there. And the reason why is like, I mean, I think I was struggling with certain things, but one of the things that looking back that I I wouldn't have put it that way back then, but now I see it, is I was really struggling with an inferiority complex. Mm. Um, I already knew that i 'm um, from the Hood on Long Island, and mm-hmm. I did not go to a private school and all these things and Here I am going to school that a lot of students went to private christian schools um a lot of a lot of students that were better off than me, and a lot of already assumptions I felt like that could be made about me, so I wanted to be judged by how intelligent I was, not by you know whether or not I stood up on an issue you know related to my identity or something like that. I basically, even at that young point, I was like, I don't want to play identity politics. I just want to be judged for how smart I am. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so I, yeah. I, tried, I tried to do that. I tried, I, tried to go, I tried to go in and basically, you know, I'm going to try to do as well as I can academically. Um, I'm going to just try to be impressive overall, but I'm really not going to try to play the race card, you know, or play into any issues dealing with identity because I don't want people to think that, you know, I'm, I'm sort of getting in because of that. And not because of my actual, like, you know, attributes or, or, or my gifts or talents.
0: Okay. Yeah, man, that's, that's, uh, that's deep. I mean, I know, well, two things. I mean, as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking to myself, like, man, well, I know for me personally, when I was in Young Life staff, this is back in the, you know, late nineties or mid mid to late nineties and stuff. I mean, I, I was not the race guy. I was kind of the funny guy and, cracking jokes i would do a lot of the stuff up from up front and but it was really i know looking back now i wouldn't probably name it but looking back it was really just kind of a uh, a way to detour things around the racial issue because there was all these always these microaggressions and always these little things well you're not like all the rest of them so i mean i just i don't know at least for me <laughs> I, I and i'm not and i'm not you know trying to tell you what you thought but at least for me it was like you know part of it was survival in in, in all white institution and you know there were no books on, you know, microaggression and white fragility at that point, you know, in 1996, <laughs> it's like, that's, it was like, shoot, I was reading Michael Eric Dyson between God and gangster rap. And it's like, all right. So, <laughs> you know, there was no, yeah. no enlightenment, if you, if you, if you will. So, uh, man, that's fascinating, bro, brother. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know yeah. that, man. I yeah.
1: Know. And I think, um, yeah, you said, one of the things that you said, I think is really true is that, um, even in that stage, um, you still deal with microaggressions. So even though I was coming from a mentality where I didn't want to really be known as somebody who focused on racial issues or identity issues, um, stuff kept happening to me. <laughs> stuff kept happening <laughs> right, to
0: me. Right, and eventually right.
1: eventually it's like I I could choose to run away from the issue of the race, but um, you know I couldn't get away from it. <laughs> it basically kept chasing me down. Things things that people said, things how people reacted to certain things. And eventually it kind of just became too much. It, 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 I would say eventually it was a combination of just like a lot of microaggressions and situations I encountered that it just eventually made my framework collapse. I was like, I can't, there's no way I can escape this. I basically realized, you know, that, um, I was not white, <laughs> even though I wanted to be, I guess in a sense, I wanted to fit in and that I, I wanted to just be seen as a Christian and you know, as a brother, you know, baptized into the same faith. But, but i I was not white, I could not be white, and I realized that that constantly became a barrier and so for me, it sort of started a slow journey um kind of while I was at Calvin to ask some more questions about about how um how oftentimes the issues of racism can kind of get kind of thrown under the rug or kind of get avoided and yep. I was fortunate that while I was at calvin it's it's it is a you know predominantly white Christian institution. So it has its own baggage that comes with a lot of these types of institutions. At the same time, it's always important that you find you find people, you find mentors that can help you even as you ask those critical questions. And every a lot of institutions, I believe, even some that you think are completely hopeless, uh, a lot of a lot of institutions have uh, certain people like that. And so. Common ended up being uh, kind of a blessing in a way, even while I was a curse in other ways. That I um, I had some teachers that really took time to help me with my writing. That um, yeah. really, uh, you know, they they couldn't understand my experience because they did not grow up where I grew up, or, you know had my background. But they under they understand they understood that it was legitimate, <laughs> and so enough yeah. for me to say, you know what, those are good questions. You should keep asking those questions. In fact, you should you should go to a a good, a good seminar, a good divinity school. I keep asking those questions. Yeah, And so, um, so yeah, so I think I, I see, I look back at my time at Calvin and I see it as really, it was really a mixed experience. I I don't, I don't want to say it was all bad. It was all good. I think in some ways that's when I really came into my own realizing how the race really came to impact my faith and, and sort of my relationship to the rest of the world. Um, it was my first time out of New York, my first time living outside of my neighborhood, um, and then. But there were some good things there. I think that started, that kind of the, the seeds were sown there, and then it just continued afterwards when I when I went to to Duke Divinity School.
0: Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, you know, and I know all of us, you know, just have that that journey. I mean, and, and that's man, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's amazing. And I'm glad. And you're right. I mean, there's always folks who, like, you know, encourage you like, man, you can you think think this through further. Like, I was just as you were again, as you were talking, I, I was thinking about my time in undergrad. And this was, you know, in the heyday of my fundamentalism. You know, I grew up Seventh-day Adventist, and, you know, it was about the Sabbath and Third Angel's message and blah, 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 blah. I mean, you know, it was like I didn't eat pork or shrimp, which was like, oh, man, I, I couldn't even barbecue, brother. I couldn't even, I couldn't even barbecue right. Man. I was like, shoot. Couldn't do no poor oh, pork man. or nothing, man. And so I remember my – I had, you know, one of my GE courses that I took was human sexuality. Um, and the whole reason I took that course was to learn how to argue – you know, against, you know, the, you know, or against people saying that it was mm-hmm. okay to have sex before marriage and stuff. And I remember my professor, so old white guy, he had a beard, and he's just like, man, he said, I hope at some point you just kind of can become unstuck with where you're at. And I remember thinking that, I was like, <laughs> this mofo, I ain't stuck. I know the truth. You don't know the truth. If
1: he lived today, he would have said, you need to get out of the sunken place. Yeah, those, those are the new terms. You know, we use microaggression, sunken place. Back then, he said you were you were a stuck brother.
0: Yeah, that's exactly, <laughs> exactly, man. Oh man. Well, um, this brings me to just some of your writing, man. Just alone. Again, for those of you listening, I will post these all in the show notes. So if you, if you listen is on iTunes, by all means, get the White Dodge podcast and look at the show notes. Um, but your titles, man, this this is amazing. I mean, um. You know, one of them is why James Cone's Liberation Theology Matters More Than Ever, The Reactionary Option, Musings on the Decline of Western Civilization. I love this one on The Guardian, April 1st, 2017. Diversity Doesn't Make Racism Magically Disappear. Can you explain a little bit about that particular essay? Yeah,
1: sure. Uh, so if I remember correctly for that for that piece, um, one thing that I was trying to, I've been trying to respond to for a while is that uh, years ago, uh, it came out that the demographics of this country would be tra- changing. So by 2042 or by 2048 or et cetera, eventually this country, um, there, were, there were some social scientists out there that were predicting that eventually this country is no, no longer going to be majority white. Yeah. It's going to be mi- minority majority or, or there's other terms for it, right? And so everybody was talking about this kind of, this post rate either post-racial future or kind of multicultural future in the country. And along with that, there was a lot more kind of coverage of of biracial babies or multicultural kind of uh, couples and relationships. And, and not that any of it was bad in the sense that I totally affirm like, you know, the, the, the importance of those, uh, the sacredness of those relationships and the fact that for a long time they've been taboo. So there's a lot of good, I think, work being done at that at the same time. Um, the way it was being framed was basically, I mean, and this is what I wrote in The Guardian, was that we would literally screw our way beyond racism. <laughs> we you know, just produce yes. enough caramel babies and and then things would be okay <laughs> because, you know, everybody's a light shade of brown and, you know, whites are no longer the majority and then, you know, poof, racism would be gone. Right. And I think that that myth, which has been a very uh, tempting myth out there, is as being completely shot out, I think, because that's just not um, how the history of this country works. And that's not how demographics work in the sense of um, there, there's something called power. There's something called history. And and so it's not, how do I say this? It's not a matter of automatic progress when it comes to, to race and demographics. And I think some people believe that, believe that, oh, things are just going to automatically get better. And um, I don't think history bears that out. And I think eventually uh, the era that came right at the end of Obama's presidency um, and his his post-presidency now with Trump, it kind of shows that. It kind of shows like, oh, we we brought into this idea that we were automatically making progress on race in this country. Things were all kind of on the right track. Mm -hmm. And then like, oh my gosh, what happened? (laughs) And what happened is essentially like uh, racism and that, that this is how it works is that it can change forms, that it can use... Um, it can still use people of color or even brown-skinned people to car- to internalize white supremacy and carry it out. Uh, you also see that in the history of colonialism, where countries that you know have been formally ruled by white European nations, uh, they just because you kick off the white colonizers doesn't mean you've kicked off colonialism, especially if it's been ingrained within the institutions um and the ways of of being within that society <laughs> so um <laughs> so yeah so that's kind of what it was about and i even re- i referenced jordan jordan peele's movie i'm I'm just so great i just want to say i'm so grateful for jordan peele our creative brother JRP. Yes, <laughs> yes. He's he's just given us another another language to talk about what is going on. But as I talk about the sunken place now, I'm like I, I'm just so grateful I have that term because yeah, I you look lying. back at go, Oh that's where I was. I was in the right. sunken place. It's, um Man. and so he you know, he made that movie as somebody that he's in a relationship, um, uh, I believe he's married to a white woman and he talks about this and you know the movie itself, uh um uh, get out um, for those who've who've seen it and hopefully if you haven't seen it you, you absolutely need to see it uh, again get out it basically is about a biracial relationship and it completely tears apart this notion that like you know everything is like kumbaya like if anything it's a horror movie and i think basically it artistically captures um this that this idea this, this is what i was trying to argue in my Guardian piece which is essentially that um, no, like there isn't this blissful biracial future. Like if anything, it might be, it still might be scary in a way that you have not imagined.
0: Mm. Oh man, that is, I mean, I, I have been told that and I, and you know, if I'm, if I'm a hundred percent transparent, which I try to be you know, all the time and I'm, I'm trying to be, <laughs> I, I know when I first started teaching courses like intercultural communication, I used to say the same thing, like, oh, our best hope moving forward is just to have interracial sex, you know, and these interracial babies will just be the future. Because I, I was told that, seeing that, but now I'm looking at it, right, eight years after Obama. In fact, I was just having a conversation at lunch with a colleague. She's African-American. And, you know, we were just sitting there talking like, you know, November 9th. We just kind of like, well what did you expect? I mean, this is, this, we knew I mean, he was going to get elected. I mean, this is you know, eight years of a black man and like all the conspiracy theories. He's a, you know, shapeshifter, alien. Uh, why, you know, Michelle's a, uh, a, a transvestite. I mean, just all the just crazy things, right. That not that being a transvestite or being trans is, is horrible, but, but the notion of all the rumors, right. That, that came out of that. And so, oh man, um,
1: yeah, I'm keep- yeah. And I think, you know, one of, one of the things that I'll just add real quick yes, to that please. is that um, I think a good kind of uh, case study is just looking at the history of Latin America. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, and yeah. as, as someone who, you know, my family's from Colombia and I've been to Colombia a few times and um, I actually come from a family where uh, half of my family is much darker skin uh, on my on my mom's side. Uh, they identify as Afro uh, Colombian, and uh, the other side is very light skinned. Um, so in a way, I'm sort of like I am biracial, but not. It, I guess in a, from a different route. <laughs> 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 not, not biracial the sense that my parents met, you know, here in the United States, and, and not like that. But um, and and seeing that, and seeing sort of how in a lot of Latin American countries there has been a lot of uh, mixing, in terms of ethnically and, and racially. In fact, the majority of all people in Latin, most Latin American countries are mestizo, are mixed in some way, or, oh. or mulatto, right? So, um, what you see in those societies is that even though there's been a lot of uh, kind of cultural mixing, there is still hierarchy, there's still uh, really blatant inequality. And even though uh, in some of these places they might not talk about racism or race in the same way that we do, they are still sort of uh, very real problems there. Yeah. And so if you want to look, if you want to look to a future, that's once, once again, it's like if you look at other precedents and examples just because you create a sort of a cultural melting power or there's a lot more mixing, it doesn't automatically mean a uh, progress. It could, it could mean just a new, a new, new categories of inequality of or sort of a new hierarchy is formed.
0: Man. Ooh, that is, that is the truth. <laughs> well, I mean, I think along <laughs> in that, I mean, I think, I mean, the, uh, the resurgence of, I think as I'm liking to put it, you know, the resurgence of, you know, of white goodwill it's like uh the amount of folks that i've gotten calls from um after the the 2016 election right and and, you know now that some of these you know research reports have come out not that there wasn't research prior to the 2016 election about race but nonetheless for some white folks it's like oh my gosh i can't believe this is happening like hey you know doc hodge we want to have you come out we're just trying to figure this thing out and i'm kind of like um no no i don't know i don't know if i'm the one because I don't know I feel like this kind of leads into this the, the next part I really wanted to talk with you about it's like this whole theological construct around racial reconciliation like I I I don't know if I'm on board with this stuff man and I know I grew up dipped and died in ccda and you know relocation and redistribution and reconciliation and so I don't know Brandy Miller tweeted something you know I don't know a while back uh and you know it was just like you know reconciliation oh, that's just great. Oh, she's great, man. I she got to get her back out, uh, especially back on the show. But she tweeted something. She was like, you know, reconciliation theology is really just continue to lift up white people. And I'm paraphrasing it. But she was like, you know, they lift, lift up white people and really just continue to keep people of color down and stuff, man. So I, what are some of the thoughts on this? And this I know this is an essay that you have on your Patreon, but I'd love to hear some more because I I haven't. I've felt this way for a long time, but I have just haven't had a lot of people talk about it. In fact, most people when I bring it up, they just kind of look at me side eye like, well, "What are you talking about? Reconciliation, race <laughs> reconciliation this is biblical. What are you talking about?" So, break that break that down a little bit. <laughs> reconciliation. All
1: right. So, where do I start? I mean, one yeah. thing I'll say
0: is.
1: I'll I'll start with a with, I'll start with a meme first. So there we go. Um I grew up watching um I grew up watching SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm part, of, I'm part of a generation where I I was I was yeah, I was I grew up watching Spongebob SquarePants and I remember there is uh the scene and it, it's you know it's been turned into a meme where uh, SpongeBob and Patrick are kind of talking, and SpongeBob talks about imagination. <laughs> he keeps talking about imagination, and it's sort of this <laughs> this way to really just kind of uh, build something or construct something. But in the context of the episode, it's clear that it's not really tethered to reality. It's not really tethered to what's actually going on in Bikini Bottom. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, yeah. uh, that's how I feel about reconciliation. Right <laughs> it sort of it sort of becomes like magic once again. This thing and and I'll, I'll start off by basically giving a caveat that I'm aware, I know a lot of people, including I have friends who um, have done, uh, do ministry work or do work with churches and, and with different groups and either use, this lang- use the language of reconciliation or have operated within kind of a paradigm that uses that term. And so I'm not here to basically discredit every single thing that is done. Because I do think there are people out there that ha- do have good intentions, and this is both black and white, or, or white and, and, and people of color, who have used this term and use that framework. And I don't want to come out and say that all of their work is bad because that's, not, that's just not true. Sure. What I, what I will say is that I believe that the good things that come from uh, their work is in spite of the framework. It's in spite of the language of reconciliation, and it's not because of it. That's my, that's my perspective. My perspective is that reconciliation is not really added much. If you're talking about social justice issues, if you're talking about privilege and power, all these things, reconciliation is not really added much to it. So it's probably some of the progress, some of the great stuff is coming from somewhere else, but not from that term. The, the way that I learned this was that once I got into, um, being in, in white Christian spaces, that term was just thrown out everywhere. <laughs> it's just like mm. something that it was ubiquitous. It was just every, everybody wanted to talk about reconciliation when it came to race, you know? And, um, and I started to realize, you know, uh, slowly, but surely that, um, what people wanted it to do, like it, it they were, it was not happening. Like whatever they wanted to accomplish with that term, like it was, uh, uh, people would say one thing and I, Clearly saw the opposite, and I saw this in churches, I saw this in schools, I saw this in different Christian spaces where basically there would be a lot of talk, and usually it would come from white white Christians who would say talk about the importance of reconciliation, and yet I started to realize that look like it almost became a way to mask the problem or to actually put the burden on people of color and some and, and people like me and you and others that basically the real problem is a, it's a relational problem. You know, mm. we just need to get along. And, yes. and the more that I heard that, the more that it became hollow because it was clear that um, it was not – uh, really, re- really leading to larger changes. And at worst, it was almost like a tool of, uh, manipulation and control. It was almost a way to pacify you to say, Oh, like, you know, if I get, if I get too rowdy or if I get out of my place, then it's like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not into rec- you know, you're not being a reconciler, Daniel, you are being an agitator. <laughs> right. yes. so, so, you know, that's, that's how it started. Um, and then what, what came out of that is I just started to basically, um, first it was intuitive in the sense that I just, or through experience, I just, I felt something was off. I'm like, this is not working for me. This whole language of reconciliation, like, is not working for me. And the, the interesting thing is that, uh, just like you told me, Dan, uh, there are, there are people who also... Would email me or came up to me and would say, "Well, you need to understand that this is a biblical concept. <laughs> you know that this is like you—you you don't have a choice. You have to believe. Right. You have to believe in racial reconciliation. Otherwise, you know, you're just being unbiblical. You're being unChristian in your mm-hmm. approach to, to racism." So, um, so I already knew. I already felt like something was off. And then once you know, I felt a lot of pressure. People saying, "Like, oh, this is biblical." It, it started to. It, lead, it led me to do some more research. I basically you know, started to, uh, look into, okay, like how does reconciliation actually appear in the Bible? How has it been used in Christian history is what people say about reconciliation. Is this actually how it's been used? And I remember everything kind of came together when I was at Duke divinity school, which, um, ironically has an entire center named, <laughs> <after reconciliation. laughs> but I, I, I just, that's just another story. I want to talk about that. Um, <laughs> all right. but, um, yeah, and uh, I remember everything came together when I was in seminary. Um, I uh, was writing a paper, and I wanted to write it about the concept of racial reconciliation. Mm. And what I wanted to do was just basically say, okay, if, if people claim that this is sort of a theological belief or framework by which we can overcome racism or bring people together, and that this is a biblical, I want to basically look, I want to I examine that claim. Is that actually true? Does that hold up? And I remember going to the library at Duke, and I went to the reference librarian. I, I, I overwhelmed the reference librarian because I basically told them, I want to see how reconciliation appears in every instance, every like every instance that appears in the New Testament in the Bible. And I also want you to tell me how it's been used theologically by church leaders and by theologians from the I would I'd say someone from like the 18th century to the present, and if it's dramatically changed. And the reference librarian was like, whoa, it was like way too much. It was like a dissertation. So <laughs> I couldn't, yeah, it was a little bit too, I was a little bit overly ambitious there. I basically wanted to do like an exhaustive uh, search of how this term has been used.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and basically trying to show um, if if historically, if there is a point at which it's clear that it became an expedient term, it became a way to kind of, and, and that that was my hypothesis and I haven't really, I wouldn't say I've proven it because it was just a paper and, and now it's like a draft uh, sitting on my Patreon. Maybe one day it'll become, you know, a longer tract or something or like a chapter. But, um, but basically the more research that I did, I found that it only strengthened my hypothesis. So I, the more that I looked, the more that I actually was disturbed by, by what I saw was the like utter disconnect between how the term actually appears in the Bible and what Christians have tried to do with it
0: yeah man oh we're, we're where do we start with that um yeah I, i'm happy to unpack it but I, no,
1: that's
0: kind of like the big picture no, I, no absolutely that's that I, I like big picture let's we can um you know take pieces of the big picture i mean all right so i mean in your essay you talk a lot about jennifer harvey's book dear white christians uh for those still longing for racial reconciliation um, you give a quote here and, you know, you she says that the but the racial problem or the problem of racism, the actual racial situation in our faith communities is not separateness uh, or separateness itself. And togetherness is certainly no solution. Separateness is merely a symptom. The real problem is what our differences represent, how they came to be historically and what they mean material and structurally still. I think for me, that's one of the big ones. Um, it's it just this is this, this kumbaya togetherness like you know if we can just sit together and hug it out i mean i remember going to the promise keepers crap back right. in the 90s and stuff man and people wanted to hug it out and stuff mm-hmm. and i don't even then even in my fundamental years i was still kind of like i don't know if this feels right because i'm like man we're just gonna overlook <laughs> like all the crap and this was you know the la riots was still uprisings was still you know fresh on my mind and i'm like i don't know man so I mean how do you engage with that what 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 are some of the some of the elements you know particularly is this quote here and and I know you have some really good you know criticism of her, her work as well here but in, in in that sense I'd love to just hear your thoughts you know on that you know and that's the whole title of the section right it's like how reconciliation gets race wrong if that makes sense
1: yeah so yeah so basically um Jennifer Harvey I think has done some really excellent work. And I, w- I would encourage um, everybody to check it out, especially her book, uh, Dear White Christians. And I think she's somebody who's done some work in, sh- in showing the the, sh- the shortcomings of the reconciliation paradigm, which is to say that, you know, people people claim that, reconciliation is a way to uh battle racism to battle bias to bring people together to unify the church but if you actually look at sort of the results socially and historically like it it hasn't it hasn't led to sort of the kind of results that sometimes people really kind of you know claim claim that it does and my my criticism of jennifer harvey is not so much i would say it's like a harsh criticism but it's more of a i think that Um, her book, like she didn't really deal with how uh, reconciliation appears in the New Testament or the Bible that much. And um, there are a lot of Christians, like you said, that they basically, they use the scripture to justify it and they say, Hey, you know, Paul uses it. You know, this is, you know, we are to be reconcilers. We've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. And so unless you deal with that, uh, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be still kind of hooked on it. So I kind of made that my project. It was kind of extending Jennifer Harvey's work and being like, okay, I read Dear White Christians is great, but I think there's some there's some gap study to be filled, and that's kind of where you know I came in. But in terms of this idea, like how reconciliation get, gets race wrong, is that you first you start with this idea that. Race is a relational problem. So, yeah. like for example, like me and you, me and you, Dan, like we we don't get along, or we get into a fight, or something. And reconciliation is us coming together and basically being like, oh, it's a misunderstanding. You know, I either hurt you, or you hurt me, or we just didn't communicate well. And so, in certain instances, and actually, one of, one of the things I found in my research is that uh, there are uh, there are a number of instances in the New Testament, including in the Gospels, where that is how the term is used. You know, like I think there's a story where Jesus tells. You know, if you are given a gift at the altar and you realize, you know, you've either like offended a brother or you've like done something wrong, like, go go ahead and like basically be reconciled or go and make up with that person. So there's a very kind of normal sense in which reconciliation just means like you try to, you know, make make peace with someone. And that's fine. The problem is when you try to extrapolate that and apply it to a, a larger systemic and historical problem which cannot be solved by that sort of relational interaction. So if you think about like the history of slavery in this country or the history of colonialism, you, you take hundreds of years of subjugation, hundreds of years of, of inequality of, 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 of horrors, like gen- like genocides against the uh, indigenous people, native Americans. And, that problem you can't be reconciled to it by becoming friends with somebody. You just can't because it, it, it it's a it was a very it was it was a it was a kind of a, a monumental event that shaped institutions that that did a number of things and our relationship right now can't undo all of that, even if we're friends. So mm-hmm. I think that's the first problem with reconciliation is that it often collapses everything to the individual. And I'm and look, I tell this people, I've, I've talked that I've talked at a few places, sometimes at, at a church, a white church or, or school. And I'll say, look, I am not against being friends with white people. I know like some people might misread me and I'd be like, Oh, you sound really upset. or You sound very critical. Like I'm really all for being personal friends. I just know at the end of the day, we can be friends and I can still get shot by the police. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. can still get called by the cops, you know? Um, I, you know, we can be friends and my median, you know, my, my net wealth will be what it is and your net wealth will be what it is. (laughs) And until that changes, until that changes, then, you know, us being friends, we got to put it into context, what it can do and what it can't do. (laughs) So I think that, you know, that, that's part of the problem. And then the other problem too, with the reconciliation paradigm is you start to assume that, That these categories of white and black are parallel to each other, like you start, you start to kind of assume that these things are, uh, you know, that we basically have two sides with equal power or two parties that have offended each other, and and that's often how it is presented. Like it's presented as if like you know, whites have done you know their bad stuff, but it's also the burden is on us to forgive and to go to them and to make peace. But usually the terms are never. Uh, equal. So the terms are usually uh, by uh, appealing to the majority culture, by uh, appealing to uh, those who have already been in power. And so it creates a false sense of a parallel when there really is no parallel. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's asymmetrical. It's not symmetrical. Um, another thing, like you said in that quote, um, basically the problem, the, the, the issue of apartness, of segregation, the fact that there is, you know, churches are highly segregated, and, and it is a problem, I guess, in one sense. Um, that is more of a symptom than it is the driving engine of the problem. And I think that is exactly where people get reconciliation wrong. They look at the fact that, you know, they're, they're in an all white space and they're like, Oh, we don't, we don't have, uh, we don't know people of color. Or we're not friends with people of color. And they assume that the issue is just like, well, we just not, we just need to talk to one another and get to know each other. But if you think back, like, That is not how uh, the problem of race – that's not – that wasn't the driving engine of the problem of race. So, like, for example, when uh, the European settlers came to the United States or came to this land that came to be called the United States, uh, they didn't know the Native Americans. They came to know them, and then they did what they did, (laughs) 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 you know. And so there isn't this prior – you know, there isn't this prior harmony that we can go back to, which is the other assumption is that, you know, if we're to be reconciled, it's like, there was a point at which, you know, the way that we've been categorized, we were all friends. And it's just a misunderstanding. Like, that's not like these categories were born in violence. These categories, like Mm. these racial, these caste systems, these racial categories, they were birthed within hierarchy. And so in some ways you, there can be no reconciliation between black and white because the terms were already set up for some people to be on top and some, some people to be on the bottom. What you need to do is completely change the terms and you need to undo what happened. And that's a much larger and obviously monumental task. But I think that's why reconciliation becomes, you know, so appealing because it it becomes kind of like a quick fix It comes something that can alleviate guilt that can alleviate the conscience that appears to be a quick fix. But what it really does is it completely distorts what the nature and the problem of race actually is.
0: Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, that's, man, that is powerful, brother. That is, that's something else. Because I think about so many, you know, well, I think about even the microaggressions, right, rooted in, uh, theologies of racial reconciliation, right? It's like people moving into the neighborhood and uh, uh, my wife overheard somebody, you know, you know, this white woman, you know, the other day talking about how, oh, we always talk about race at our church. And, you know, and you know, and our community is so multicultural and you got the gangbangers over here and you got like the, the Hispanic gangs over here. I mean, and, but just the way she was like <coughs> exerting all those things. I'm just like, wait a minute what do you really know about this? And like, you always talking about race. And I mean, like even some of these churches that claim to be, you know, multicultural and in multiculturalism, I guess the question really becomes then is like, is multiculturalism or interculturalism, right? Is is that is that the answer? I mean, I think so many people have hung their hats on that. Like if we can just get the church to be, you know, more, we just add a few more people. I mean, is, is that the answer? Or is it really more issues with policy? Like, you know, are we actually being invited to the table to actually decenter whiteness i mean i don't i mean does that make sense i don't know if that makes sense man that yeah that i know that that
1: absolutely makes sense and i think obviously it's a combination of things like i'm not here to say that the relationships don't matter because sometimes oftentimes people sometimes do come come to some better understanding sometimes i would say sometimes because it's all automatic sometimes they do come to a better understanding based on a relationship but what i'm trying to what I've been trying to argue in this piece and in other other things that I've written is that you have to look at the big picture and you have to look at racism as a systemic uh, problem. Um, and if that's the case, then sort of a relational solution is not going to be enough, but that's what people continually go to. actually, one of the one of the things that i that I also thought about and I, I didn't really write that much about it, um but this is something I probably hope to expand in the future is people love to talk about the truth and reconciliation commission in South Africa, you know, okay. and they give that, you know, as an example of reconciliation, you know, working in the world, like here, here we, here we had, you know, a black majority being oppressed by a white minority. And, you know, there was a lot of violent conflicts. Um, there were people that were in prison political leaders like Nelson Mandela and others. And then you were able to overcome that conflict, you know, in a peaceful way. And, you know, there were, there were famous Christians involved like Desmond Tutu. And so in many ways, and the truth and reconciliation commission becomes the perfect myth for Christians, at least historical myth to, for Christians to talk about how like, Oh, you no know, reconciliation can work. Uh, unfortunately the, the reality, the situation is the reality is that, um, that's not how uh, things have not been paradise in South Africa. And actually, um, you know, leading up to this, I just, uh, there a couple of days ago, uh, there's an article in the New York times and the, the title of the article was, they eat money, uh, they eat money, how Mandela's political heirs mm. rich off corruption. Uh, it's the New York Times that just came out recently. And it talks about what has happened to the country since uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission after apartheid. And what often happens is that we do the same thing that we do to Martin Luther King Jr., to King in this country, which is we, we, we sort of pick a certain clip. We hear, like, you know, the, I have a dream speech or a certain something, and then we, we freeze him in time. And we forget about anything that King said later in his life, right? Um, We do the same thing with South Africa. We, you know, oh, there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There were some really great Christians involved. Everything was peaceful. And then that's it. (laughs) That's it. Mm, Uh, What you actually look, if you read, is that there's been a lot of inequality. And there's actually been a lot of problems and corruption with the the ruling party, uh, the ANC. Um, And so... um, you know, people often want to, that's one example that they point to. Um, it's either, you know, they, they, they point to King or they point to the truth and reconciliation commission and kind of give more historical background. But to me, okay, if anything, if Trump has proved anything and sort of what our current political climate is that the civil rights is not the the, the struggle for civil rights is not over. Like it was, it was yeah. probably started, but it is not over. I mean, we still need voting rights and that's what, that's what Reverend Barber is, you know, uh, working on right now. A lot is is really reclaiming the radical spirit of King, and so uh, a lot of people talk about reconciliation, and it's, it once again it's sort of like you take a moment in time and you freeze it, but when you look at what actually happened. Um, uh, King's project was really domesticated. You know, he, he became, he's been domesticated by, by corporations and, and by Republicans and people who reinterpret him. same thing with South Africa right now. And the people that you, that you really need to talk to, if you're a Christian and I, this is my recommendation. If you're a Christian, talk to young Christians of color in South Africa, Don't, wow. that those are the yeah. people you need to be talking to talk to young Christians of color, because those are the ones that are protesting to decolonize the universities. Those are the ones who are starting to see the the glittering holes in the ruling political party that negotiated um, negotiated the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And what they're basically saying is that this whole process only scratched the surface. It didn't really really go far enough because uh, a lot of the universities and and the the economic inequality has only gotten worse. And so you really need a much robust uh, vision and project to deal with what's been wrong in that society. And those are the types of things that I think it helps when it comes to Vingerman
0: reconciliation is, is think
1: about how it's actually historically played out.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I mean, I mean <laughs> I'm looking at the, I mean, there's so much stuff here. There's so much, I mean, this is like a whole, you know, class, but this I mean, I think about the, I mean, I'm looking at the article now and again, I'll post this in the show notes as well. Cause this is actually, I saw you retweeted. Um, and, uh, I got a chance to briefly read it, but one of the pictures that stood out to me was, this bigger than life statue of, you know, Mandela um, and it, you know, the caption says while Mandela, Mr. Mandela is still revered in the West, his legacy is regarded more harshly in South Africa and especially among young blacks. And which is what you just said, right? It's like, it's, it's it's like, what is the, you know, what is the critical understanding of, of leaders? You know, how do we memorialize? And then, you know, I mean, part of it is too, I mean, right. We just celebrated what 50 years of King's death and, I think about we want to memorialize it. I, I th- almost thought it was ironic that Trump. I subscribed to the White House just because I want to know what the hell's going on. I subscribe to the White House newsletter, and so he sent out this <laughs> newsletter. I know it's crazy, man. And some days I just delete it. I don't even read it. I just delete it because I'm like, it's not not today, not today, Satan. But um, that that day I read it. It was the, the on the literally the 50th anniversary of, of King's death, and he's talking about how King's a patriot and a real American, and I'm like, bruh. You know how, like, King would be going in on your ass right now, like, if he was alive and, like, (laughs) all the stuff that you've done, but yet you hear you. So it's it's, it's almost like the nostalgia is something that we want to hold on to rather than actually dealing with the reality, the historic. Uh, And then it's like a double-edged sword because then when people say, it's like, um, I'm trying to give an example here because it's like five ideas just ran into my head. But it's like, you know, you get some movement forward. Like, say, for example, this is a simple example, right. but go ahead. What was that? No, I said right. No. Some movement forward, <laughs> right? Yeah, you are right. Yeah, you get some movement forward, and then it's like, okay, you get a, you get a commercial, for example, that shows a black couple or whatever, or a Latinx couple, or a mixed racial couple, and and it you know, but then but then they don't get it right. Then they're like they're like sellouts or they're like whitewashed or it's something, and then and then people get mad at you because then it's like, well, you guys are never happy. You guys just want to complain about everything. <laughs> um and i feel that's part of what reconciliation particularly a lot of reconciliation theologies current ones popular ones particularly um have done they've just kind of washed away the roots of it and just it's just it's just more of let's just come together let's be nice let's laugh let's have a beer we'll hug it out and you know then we'll be good we good we good right so I, <laughs> this it's, yeah it's interesting i just think yeah go keep going Yeah, no,
1: I just, I want to say, I think that's absolutely right, that reconciliation, it plays, it sort of plays a factor when it comes to, uh, you know, there's there's this idea that some progress is made, and therefore it's enough. And I think what I've started to see, so this is, and you know, you know this well, Dan, and I know you know this, so I don't have to worry about you, (laughs) but you know, King, King's legacy obviously has been whitewashed and domesticated. Right. And what's happened is, you know, there is there is the full life of King and everything he stood for and everything he said, and a lot of it towards the end of his life uh, became very radical, just like, you know, Cornell West has, has, a, has a collection, The Radical King, if people want to read some of those more, you know, radical writings and sermons. But, you know, uh, King towards the end of his life, he was a radical. He saw that the problem of race, had uh you had to basically restructure all of American society because it was built on injustice and racism and it would eventually you know it, it could destroy the world through violence and so he 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 had a very radical notion of how things needed to change but that that's in a way i think what happened and i I've written about King as well and about his political vision is that some people they just couldn't swallow that they couldn't just deal with that and so they basically blocked off that side of King or they chose to reinterpret his life and and really not talk about that side. So it was almost like I would call it like a strategy of containment. It was sort of yeah. you you contain the radicalism. You sort of control it because it's just too much to bear, because it's too much of a it, it what it calls is for the restructuring of everything, including how um how white people live and what whiteness is. And I think that that's the problem with reconciliation insofar as it centers whiteness it doesn't want to change whiteness it wants to make whiteness sort of it still wants to make black and brown everything revolve around whiteness the moment that you want to liberate yourself from whiteness and liberate everything that's a big that's a steeper because that's a steeper price that's like a steeper challenge um i would say with reconciliation um the same thing has happened that has happened with king in the sense that my, my hypothesis has been is that if you look at the history of the church, reconciliation has been a term that's been used because obviously it's in the New Testament, it's in the Bible, but plenty of theologians have talked about reconciliation between humanity and God. I mean, you can go to Karl Barth's Dogmatics, go to Karl Barth's Dogmatics, and he has a lot of, I think his entire section or book or on uh, recon- the doctrine of reconciliation. So obviously this is something that Christians have been aware of this term. My, my, my question, my critical line of question has been, when did it become racialized? When did reconciliation become this racial thing? And my hypothesis is that it, around the same time that the civil rights became domesticated and that King basically got whitewashed, That is when, that is when reconciliation became this, this term that it was never before in the history of the church, which is this magic bullet for racism, magical bullet, silver bullet for racism. It never was that before. The reason why it was never that before is because, well, uh, whites didn't really think about people of color as human, so it wasn't a problem. So you don't need, you don't need to be reconciled with people that you think as less than human. But the, the So that was the first part. But then the second part is once that starts to change and once uh, uh, people start to put a lot more pressure on society and to basically, this is also think about the, the 60s and 70s. This is when liberation the, uh, liberation theologies are starting to form in Latin America, black liberation theology in the United States. There's a lot more sort of radical impulses that are coming out. That is precisely the time when reconciliation becomes important (laughs) and (laughs) and it, it becomes this thing that's never before my hypothesis is that whether people know it or not or whether they intended it or not reconciliation was a way to whitewash and to silence radical christians like king and like others who are finally starting to question you know everything they're starting to question the white church or starting to question uh american society and then at that moment that's when you get this other paradigm
0: yeah Wow, yes, um <laughs> oh man this is this is great, man, I mean, because I think we need more conversations on this, and you know, and i I know I'm looking at the time now, I don't want to be weary of our, our of our of our time, and you know I mean the time just goes so bad, I obviously, need to get you back on and, and and talk more about this, but i think i don't know i'm just i i i I get concerned you know when in, whenever there's simplistic methods in approaching something so complex as race and ethnicity, especially in the era that we live in now. I mean, I think the power of propaganda and rhetoric um, is 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 insidious, really, I mean, we're, is with where we're at right now. I mean, you know, the president calling uh, the raid on his uh, a lawyer, uh, Cohen, right, um, you know, a, a threat on or attack on our nation. I'm like, wait wait what like where where are we and don't get me wrong i have no necessarily no big love for the fbi and i do think that you know even though uh <laughs> comey is coming out now trying to be all like oh yeah 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 i'm like dude why did you release that crap the night before the election on hillary like what what the hell's going on but anyways all that to say man um I do think that we're, we're in a critical state and it's, and, and I think we're still trying to, not we, but broader folks and in the Christian church are still trying to come with simplistic means and methods to solve something that's now, I feel like now it's like we had a big boil and you know, before it might've been treatable, but we've left it untreated. And now it's just burst and there's pus and blood and nasty shit all over the place. And people still keep wanting to put like a bandaid on it. Like, well, let's just put it just, you know, just put a little bandaid on it. You, will be all right. You know, we'll just clean this up and, you know, contain it and stuff, man. So I think what you're, you're putting here, all that to say is, I think what you're saying here is right on. And for those of you listening, go pay the money, go, go just and, and support this brother uh, on Patreon. I mean, you need to read the whole essay because you have some amazing sources and I didn't want to give away everything, especially your conclusion. <laughs> um, but that's, that, that's on point, man. Um, uh I'd be curious to each as I'm as I'm thinking about it. I mean what are some next things for you what are some things coming up uh as you think about just the era we live in and all that good stuff man what are what are some things you're working on and you know that that stuff
1: <laughs> Yeah
0: Yeah well um one of the things that you know I'm trying
1: to trying to work on is is thinking about uh this idea of the Christian left um and progressive Christians and yeah. that's been sort of something I've written a lot about has been, um, like I said, I've, I've written about King's politics and the, and the religious left. And, and the reason why I, r- I write about it is because um, I think it's always very easy to make yourself the hero in any particular story. And I think that goes for me as well. I mean, I, it's easy for me as a progressive Christian to bl- you know, point the finger to always that like conservative evangelicals or Trump supporters and say, you know, they are the problem with the church. Um, but if we're honest with ourselves, we, we often are all implicated somehow. And, um, one of the things I've been writing about, it's been difficult because I think it's the type of thing that I, I think it leaves me a little bit isolated sometimes because like, you end up, if you end up criticizing everybody then, you know, or saying every, there's something wrong with everybody then, you know, it's, it's sometimes gets, gets difficult. But, um, I I've been trying to write about this idea of the Christian left, you know, what, where, sort what yeah. about these other Christians? that are into social justice, that are not Republicans, that et cetera. And what can we do? And, and what I've been trying to say is that we also have our own share of problems we, in the sense that, um, we have not been able to provide, uh, an alternative, I think a viable alternative or, or a cohesive alternative sometimes to what, uh, conservative evangelicals and the religious right do. Um, I think there's some really awesome work that's being done. And um, once again, I'm not, not to deny that there's some really great work being done. And I, I already mentioned, you know, Reverend Barber and, and he's working on the new Poor People's Campaign. And I think that's fantastic. I think that's like a step really in the right direction. I think the question becomes the degree to which um, Christians are able to really, um, we're able to uh, have a conscience when it comes to us and to not be sold, to not be to not buy into either political party in the sense of we need to put pressure on all leaders. Because the way we got to Trump, the way we got to the, you know, the way that ISIS today has been through years and decades of negligence and really bad policymaking. And that goes for both, you know, both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. So coming up, I think one of the things I want to write about more is I I want to... go back to that topic because people always ask me, you know, what is the alternative, you know? So if you're critical of the religious life, you know, what should we do or what should the uh, yeah. progressive Christians do? So yeah. I've been, you know, thinking about that. That's something I want to I write more about. You know, I, I've been talking about reconciliation. Obviously this is something that to me is still a, it's still a, a draft It's kind of a stash of research. I'm, I'm looking to expand it more. And so that's something I want to write about uh, more. And yeah. And then I think some of it, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, part of my writing is, is, is very much, I try to stay in tune with what, what's happening in culture and society and in the news and politics. So some of it will kind of develop, you know, in process with what, you know, what happens. Um, but, you know, I'm excited. I'm gonna continue, I think, to write about these things. And for anybody who's who's read my work, um, you know, and shared and supported, you know, I'm just, I'm really grateful because I've, I've been blogging for a while and writing and, and I continue to get more opportunities. And so I'm really grateful for, you know, everybody who, who supports my work along the way
0: man that's and and you know and, and you're absolutely right i mean which is you know kind of been my whole mantra you know since i got in this thing man it's like i i've had a lot of help i've had a lot of you know you can't do any of this stuff in in a vacuum and you know the whole bootstrap narrative and stuff and so my whole thing has always just been to you know pay it back and so i mean i think as your voice has come around man i've just been you know i've learned a lot and, and, and in in engaging with your work and so that's Yet another reason why I wanted to get you, you know, on the show, and, and definitely want to get you back because I think we're just scratching the surface here, which is good. I mean, leave people wanting more. I always say that. You know, that's all right. like, oh man, You're like, oh of course. Um, but this is great, brother. I have definitely this conversation is 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 great. Um, and in the background, my phone keeps ringing off the hook. I don't even know who this is. I tried to send him in the voicemail, but nevertheless, whoever you are calling, man, i I'm, I'm, I'm not picking up. Um where can people find you, man? What are uh where can people pay you that uh that mega one thousand ten thousand dollar, you know, honorarium and stuff, man, to bring you out and give a oh, twenty minute keynote. Yeah, no, I
1: don't I don't expect <laughs> anybody to give me that much. That's just ridiculous. But if you want to buy me a cup of coffee or a cafe con leche, that's what I call it. There we go, there we go. Um, uh, you know, uh, I have my Patreon page. You can find the link for it on my Twitter, um, and you can find it also on my, my website is danieljcamacho. dot uh, com, and then my Twitter is da- uh, my handle is at Daniel J Camacho for Twitter. Um, and yeah, if you go to my website, most of my work is available available online for free. Uh, so you can go through a lot of my articles I've written about uh, theology, about culture, about politics. Um, my, my essay on reconciliation is the one that, um, is right now is for, is for, uh, Patreon supporters only. Um, but eventually, you know, I hope to share it down the road with everybody, but if you want to see that, you know, and I, um, there's a lot of stuff, like you said, we don't have, we don't have time to talk about, but I, I go through, I exegete every, I try to exegete every single instantiation of reconciliation as it appears in the New Testament in Greek. There you go, <laughs> it's right. A paper. So it's, people people tell me that oh like you don't you know this is not biblical it's like well do you know the bible <laughs> because i've gone through the my bible doesn't say that but anyways um so yeah those are some places to you know find me
0: man that's what's up man yeah well and i and i love your your twitter feed and and you know and what you're doing now and again for those listening i'll put these things in the show notes along with some of the articles that he's uh cited and again the Patreon support this brother, support folks. I mean I think that's when people, you know, turn their palms up and say, Oh, we don't know any people of color I'm like, Yes you do. You just all you need to do is just ask somebody and they're gonna give you five other names. I'm always just like I give you ten other yep. names <laughs> And and when you bring us, pay us, pay us. Don't be trying to, you know, because I always tell people, like, look, it wasn't like I went to Fuller and was just like, oh man, four thousand, five thousand dollars a class. Oh man, I can't go to that. Now, I just give you like two hundred dollars, and you know, I'll break it off and give you a love offering. Like hell, no, nah, you ain't you ain't getting jack done. So pay us and support this, brother. It's 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 a it's a good cause. <laughs> man brother Thanks, what, oh well thank you man thank you for coming on the show thank you for your work um again we will get you back on this is just the beginning um and um <laughs> i'm excited for books as well you publishing and all that good stuff i won't let nothing out the bag but books <laughs> well we'll see
1: we'll see i'm just, just trying to you know i'm just trying to get a deal out, deal out here so <laughs> <That's> uh <funny. laughs> like like Joey Badass says, you know, Joey Joey Badass has that really
0: good line, you know. You know, shit is really real out here. Just trying to get a deal out here. You know? But we'll see what happens. That's right. That's, <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. I hear that, brother. Well, hey, man, thanks a lot for coming.
1: All right. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it.
0: Part of what reconciliation theologies um, do is a they really do take away the strength and the power of white supremacy. Um it does limit, it does limit, it limits it limits whiteness to just being able to feel good. It limits it. I mean, here's the thing. I mean if we think about it this from a straight up theological perspective. I mean let's let's be let's let's look at this rationally. I mean the uh, reconciliation um while we can see that in parts of the atonement and parts of you know christ on the cross and all that the reality of it is is that jesus himself didn't even practice this reconciliation right he wasn't going to king herod and being like hey you know uh i think we should work it out you know he wasn't going to the sadducees and pharisees and sitting down and saying um, hey, oh man, you know, we should figure this out. We should really reconcile because that's God's way. No, he wasn't. You know what I'm saying? Uh, at least we're not told that in either both, you know, the scripture that is in canon and, and, and the paracanonical literature. We're, we're not shown any of that. And so I don't, uh, I don't get caught up in trying to be friends with everyone. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and not even friends, but just, this idea, a notion that somehow things aren't right if they're not reconciled, um, and I do, I have real problems with 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 that notion and with that ideology because again, it's it's lackluster. It lacks it lacks the thoroughness of what that really looks like. And not that you live life to hold grudges or to um, you know you, you know hold somebody to what they've done in the past, but at the same time. We we cannot overlook certain atrocities. I mean think about this. We haven't reconciled as a country, we haven't reconciled with Al Qaeda. We we're not just extending an olive leaf, right? We haven't forgotten about World War II, right? I May mean, every new year there's a you know new World War II movie. Um, you know, as a country we're not we're not trying to reconcile ourselves to 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 North Korea. I mean sure you got, you know, Trump trying to go up there and now you got North Korea saying they wanna, you know, denuclearize, but that has nothing to do with racial reconciliation. So, I think those things have to be on the map. I think those things need to be on the table as we think about what it really means to be reconciled. Um, And this is really the conversation that Daniel and I have. And it's a start, um, and, you know, we need to press forward on this. We need to press more into this. And I think he is starting a conversation that we have—it's been long overdue. And, um Folks have been talking about this for a long time. And I know this is, again, these are very popular theologies that are out there. Um, But nevertheless, we got to engage.